Last week, Jesus told the disciples for the first time that he would have to undergo great suffering, betrayal, death, and then he would rise again. And this week, Jesus repeats that same message to the disciples. Jesus had been gaining popularity because of his healing methods and his miraculous deeds. The crowd of followers was growing. Surely this crowd would have been a bit distracting, with everyone reaching out, asking and begging and pleading for Jesus to do something. Or maybe a crowd that was getting angry because they don't understand Jesus. But Jesus knows his earthly time is slipping away, and he wants to make sure his disciples understand the whole point and are ready for their next chapter in discipleship. So Jesus moves the disciples away to focus, to prepare. While they're walking, Jesus overhears his disciples talking. And when they get to their destination, he decides to call them out on it. He asks them, what are they arguing about? And their response? Crickets. Silence. One translation even uses the language, the silence was deafening. I imagine all the times my four siblings and I would bicker about the random things like who gets the remote control, who gets the front seat, and then boom, we'd hear my mother's voice through the house asking, what are y'all arguing about? Many times our response would be embarrassed silence because we knew we were arguing about something silly something that didn't matter. And we certainly didn't want to get in trouble with our mother for it. Mark doesn't give us the exact reason as to why the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest. Our lectionary actually skips Mark's account of the transfiguration, which occurs at the beginning of this chapter. During the transfiguration, only Peter, James, and John get to witness God's voice from the cloud. The rest of the disciples aren't mentioned as being there. And even though Peter, James, and John are sworn to secrecy, perhaps they were bragging to the others. Or maybe they're arguing because the reality of Jesus' imminent departure is settling in. And they're feeling the pressure to decide who will run point. Who's going to lead them when Jesus is gone? I suspect the latter option is giving the disciples too much credit. After all, the text tells us they don't understand. Jesus' response to their silence Sounds like he's frustrated with their nonsensical arguing. This is the second time he's had to call them out on it. It is clear that the disciples just aren't getting the gravity 
of a situation. And instead are focusing on things that do not matter. The fear expressed by the disciples is because they do not understand what's going on. As merely humans, it appears Jesus' imminent death is too large for them to grasp and understand. Consequently, they've had to draw their own conclusions from Jesus' messages. And unfortunately, they're not exactly what Jesus was getting at. Jesus redirects and reminds them that the kingdom Jesus ushered in is one of reversal and one that demolishes the traditional hierarchy. He tells them first that whoever wants to be in first place must take last place and be the servant of all. Jesus' kingdom truly flips the narrative. As a kid, my brothers and I would argue over being the last in line. After hearing this passage, we wanted to be the last person in line. At six, seven, and ten years old, we really misunderstood the message. But we got half of it. We were listening at least a little bit. And I wonder if Jesus was weary that his disciples would also miss the whole point of the lesson, as they so clearly did earlier. And so he decides to use a physical, a tangible example to clearly spell out his message to the disciples. This time, he wants to ensure that they get it. After telling them that they must be the servant of all, Jesus takes a child. Holding on to it, he brings the child into the center, to the focus of the disciples. There's a deep significance to this choice. Today, we think of children with an awe, an innocence, admiration. But that wasn't always the case during this time. Rather, children were representative of the least of society, the lowest on the ladder. The word here used for child is the same one used in the Old Testament's suffering servant prophecy in Isaiah. Jesus is using a child to represent the other, the servant, the ones the disciples aren't thinking about or don't want to think about. Jesus chooses the child to illustrate his point and help the disciples to see just who they are called to serve. Earlier in the week, I was planning the Sweet Studies Bible study for our third through fifth graders. I decided it would be fun to explore stories of important children in the Bible. When I came across one story labeled, The Kid Who Was Hugged by Jesus, I was a little bewildered. I've been in seminary for three years now, and I can't remember a child who was hugged by Jesus. 
Sure, I remember those who are blessed, those who are healed, but hugged. I quickly realized that the scripture listed was actually the scripture for this week, um, the one we just read. It was talking about this child. This word choice changed my understanding of the imagery in our story and Christ's overall message to the disciples. I admittedly used to think the child was only a symbolic prop, awkwardly grabbed and brought into the middle. But this translation helped me to realize Jesus is not simply using the child as a prop. Instead, Jesus is hugging the child, a physical sign of closeness and of love. Jesus is choosing to embrace the child, not only holding the child, the least of these, but full-on embracing the child, an outward sign of a deep inward love. And he's also continuing to flip the hierarchy on the disciples by physically moving the lowest, the child, into the center, inverting the normal structures and honoring the child and every person the child represents. His actions are mirroring his words. Jesus says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Jesus reminds the disciples of his own entrance into the world through the humble messiness of a child. Those who welcome the infant Christ welcome the one who sent him. They welcomed God. And now... Jesus wants his disciples to keep doing that even after Jesus has left them. To Jesus, this is what actually matters and what the disciples need to hold on to. The word in our text is translated as welcome. But Jesus' own actions imply a stronger language. If you've ever gone into the restaurant Moe's, you know that the minute you walk through the door, you're welcomed with the phrase, welcome to Moe's. Eve, again and again, you could leave and come right back in, they're still going to greet you. It's a sign that they're happy you're here. You're free to get a table, get some food. It's a nice gesture. At the very least, it acknowledges your presence. They're seeing you. In our story, Jesus doesn't just point to the child over there passively and say, whoever welcomes one such child, da-da-da, welcomes me. No. Jesus gets up, goes over, and takes the child. Hugs, embraces the child. One translation, the Bible, the message, actually uses the word embrace instead of the word welcome. And I personally love that. That seems to be the stronger and more adequate expression of what Jesus is doing 
and illustrating in this story. We often pride ourselves on saying all are welcome here, which is amazing. It is so wonderful that all are welcome here. In this story, Jesus is challenging us to radical hospitality that is one step further from welcome to embrace. Is it our goal for people to simply be passively seen when they arrive in our lives, like the welcome to Moe's greeting? Or do we want to embrace people? Where we say not only, hey, I see you, but we grab them, hug them, and say, here, you're sitting next to me today. This is where you belong. To move to a place where all are welcome, but more importantly, all are loved and embraced. All belong. This is our challenge. And it's a tough one because, as I was reminded in our Bible study the other night, we don't get to decide who we serve, who we embrace. Christ comes to us as a messy child, as a beggar, a liberal, a conservative, a rebellious teenager, and a grumpy old man. Because of Jesus and the new kingdom of reversal he brings with him, we must embrace every one of them. We must embrace all who have a need. This is what Jesus wants his disciples to hold on to. This is what matters to them and to all of us. What a beautiful, miraculous kingdom we can all share in when we embrace this message. Amen.